I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. You know how people comment on your perfectly gorgeous, naturally pointy ears. Well, some nasty people cut their dog's ears to make them look a bit like yours. And that's why we're jumping on Zoom now to talk to the amazing Jordan Shelley about his campaign, Flop Not Crop, and much more. Jordan Shelley, thank you so much for coming on A Dog's Life. I really feel, oh dear, I'm so backwards in not having spoken to you before because I've been wanting to have this conversation for years, actually, Jordan. So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a, a real pleasure to be here. No, no. Well, gosh, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> I don't really <laughs> so, know where to start. <laughs> well, no, same here. So I, I have made, <laughs> same here, actually, which is why I have made notes. Just describe to introduce yourself really to our listeners Jordan you know where you are in the animal animal welfare big jigsaw puzzle as it were well so um these days I am a systems coordinator over at Animal Licensing Wales um and they're a national trading standards unit in Wales that look at licensing for um breeders kennels catteries um hopefully soon uh, rescues and sanctuaries when that's brought in under the layer regs um, and obviously prior to that I was um, a director at the Fold Group and um, focused on animal law and around the Flop Not Crop campaign which was the um, ear cropping uh, anti-ear cropping campaign to try and ban um, cropped imports unfortunately the, the kept animals bill was dropped there's a whole debate and discussion there for later on in the podcast I'm sure no absolutely <laughs> well no um, I mean it's so interesting you know because I, I didn't know you'd been involved with the full group for example so does that mean you're a lawyer Jordan no well? I'm not um I I joined um more from like a, a behavioral um aspect so I, I my background is actually in behavior and training um that's how I started um originally if you go back right to the very beginning of my career I was actually quite an aversive sort of old school trainer um, and then crossed over on national TV um, to the light side, shall we say. Oh, really? I didn't know that at all. <laughs> what was the name of the programme? It was it was um, the BBC One show. Right. Um, yeah, what was I, it? I missed BBC it. One show I had, it was in, gosh, I was what? I must have been 20 at the time, 21. So we're talking 2011. Right. Uh, um, and I guess that was how my more public career started. I mean, I'd already worked as a veterinary assistant and um, worked as a trainer and, and walker and, and other kinds of things. And that was, I suppose, kind of my introduction to more um, public facing. Uh, kind of, it was an interesting roller coaster, shall we say, because obviously I was on the show as a aversive dominance based trainer and, and um, Victoria Stillwell and Beverly Cuddy at Dogs Today started a campaign against me. Um, and it was called Get Jordan Shelley Off the Telly. It was brilliant. And they um, they su su succeeded after a few episodes. And I was reading Beverly's blog and she was blogging away about all this young man that was on the TV and, and all the things that he was doing. And so I, wrote, I, I sort of reached out to her. I rang her. And I think initially she didn't take my phone call because she thought I might shout at her. But eventually she picked up the phone and we had a really nice conversation, actually. And I said, listen, if there is this better way of training, just show me. And next thing I knew, I was kind of on a plane and stood on Dr. Ian Dunbar's doorstep in 
California <laughs> in San Francisco. And he then mentored me, which was just the most incredible experience. So my background really is like training and behavior. Um, uh, and then I kind of went on from there to do all the various IMDT courses, did a um, mentorship with Steve Mann, did a mentorship with the lovely Sarah Fisher. Um, and that's sort of my background, I guess. And then move more into the the welfare world when i became really aware it was cropping that really i think pushed me into it if i'm honest i rest well, that's, i must admit that cropping was when i really thought gosh oh jordan shelley oh gosh what a good person you know i hadn't really this was a major campaign that put you i think you know at the forefront of issues at a very topical time when of course suddenly we're seeing dogs with cropped ears in this country, despite it being still illegal to crop dogs' ears in this country. You know, in America, sadly, you know, it's still legal and it's it's always been legal. You know, it was quite a fashion trend. There's some places in the States where it's it's not even restricted. So you can go to a feed store, you can pick up the anesthetic and the DIY cropping kit and you can do it at home. Mm. I mean, that's how unrestricted it is in some parts of the states. It's really yes. quite shocking. Um, and that, that was part of the campaign as well, was that, you know, when we first started campaigning, you could buy DIY cropping kits on the American Amazon and get them shipped to the UK, which mm. I thought was horrific. And so part of the campaign was getting them taken off Amazon. So they're now no longer on Amazon. We also got on by to stop shipping them to the UK. We got uh, AliExpress to stop shipping them to the UK. And so we're just slowly kind of closing those, those loopholes around how people were getting this equipment to do it illegally here but the, the big thing was that importing these dogs with cropped ears was then making enforcement's job here a nightmare because unless you got close enough to scan a dog with a chip scanner to prove that it wasn't an import it was really hard to know who was cropped where and when and frankly if it's illegal here because well firstly vets won't do it and we understand that it's cruel and it's simply a cosmetic procedure we shouldn't really be offshoring that cruelty which which in a sense is what we've done by allowing imports Yes, well, absolutely. Well, you know, the thing is, though, as well, there are certain breeds of dogs that you crop their ears, you know, and that's still the case in America. I mean, I don't think anyone would crop a Labrador's ears, for example, because they have always had floppy ears and always will. But it's almost like this look that was pro proliferated in the States to have the Doberman with the ears like my little Mr. Binks, who is an English toy terrier. He has naturally candle flame ears. He's one of the only breeds that does and so many people ask me if he's a doberman puppy which just shows how little people know about dogs you know it makes me laugh and I say no he's actually 11 and a half what years they say yes this is him and there's no relation to a doberman either he's English and dobermans are German so we end the conversation there you know what I mean but it is it was the the, the dobermans the boxers the technically the working breeds that then stretched to you know your your more bull breeds that some of the gangster rap guys you know in the the late um 1980s where this pitbull suddenly you know spread to fame through gangster rappers and you know that type of culture in new york and brooklyn and bit by bit this new breed this american pitbull landed on our shores and we all know what happened then but that's the the sort of this macho thing isn't it about it but of course it is, it's, and it's it's very much driven also by this like desire for 
I, I call it the Insta-like desire. You know, it's like it's driven by social media, by celebrities sharing their photos of these mutilated dogs on on like Instagram and trying to get likes, trying to get followers and using them really for the look. It's not just about being hard. There's also this strange, strange culture that almost idealizes them on the Internet. Um, and, and that's problematic. You know, my, my first rescue dog with crop tail. So I, I fosters, gosh, 300 and something odd dogs over the years. It's been <laughs> quite a lot. And the most we had at any one time in my my previous place was 22 foster dogs. Um, and my first real experience, even after all those years of fostering, coming across cropping was, um, I reckon... Eight, eight years ago when it started to become really prolific i i bought home a, a dog from a, a colleague that's a dlo and he was um seized from a um crack den essentially and they chopped his ears off with the kitchen scissors mm, and when i was God. there um obviously going to pick up the dog i was horrified to see that all the food they've been feeding him and all the products they've been feeding him had crop dogs advertised on the side of them and that was what really piqued my interest into how is this possible when this procedure is illegal and we need to do something about it. And then the more I researched it, the more I came up against this same excuse that pro cropping uh, people were using was, oh, it's an import. And because it's an import, it's legal. And that was their excuse also to get around using them on the advertising and, and, and so on. And I felt like that was really wrong. Unfortunately, that my first bully, um, Earl Grey, is no longer with us. Um, and actually, uh, at the beginning of this year, I fostered another um, bully, Basil, who's still here. And he also has mutilated ears that were chopped off illegally in this country. He was seized at about five months. Um, and they also tried to claim that he was an, an illegal import, a legal import. But unfortunately for them, or fortunately for him, for the dog, they didn't provide any paperwork. There was no microchip. So it was clear that he was done illegally in the UK and he was seized and he came here as a foster and he's not going anywhere. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, but I mean, for, for me, it seems that the popularity of, you know, this XL bully, you know, which I has, has also proliferated, really, the cropping. I mean, that seems to me to be the main breed in this country you know i've not seen I a would, doberman right so no i was going to say i would add i would add dobermans and cane corsos to the list and it's a specific um it's not as prolific amongst those but it's a specific group um that often work uh protection dogs and train protection dogs that are proliferating a lot of it so if you look at most of the celebrities that have crop dogs the likelihood is is that they came from one of about three different protection dog companies um and and they're the ones that really have a lot to answer for um, they're the ones that are providing all these celebrities with these dogs that they're sharing all over the internet and what i find so horrific about the the protection dog world not is not just the mutilation but it's the fact that people are able to train and churn out weaponized dogs without any kind of oversight um or any kind of licensing or, or guidance they seem to slip through the cracks between that pet dogs and guard dogs and it's it's really messy even even defra is not really able to um decide whether a protection dog or, or explain whether a protection dog sits under guard dogs or is a, is a personal like dog you know and and that's part of the issue yeah that's really my gosh i didn't actually think about that but yes i've seen a van locally would you believe jordan recently i did think 
what and it's all professional you know we supply professional guard dogs but it's not in um you know it's not a very sort of authoritative vehicle if you see what I mean it's just like a white van all looks a bit Del boy with and I'm thinking really but you know look I live in Hackney so you see everything you know you see absolutely everything here and including you know a lot of cropped XL bullies at the moment around here Jordan you see as well so this is something also I wanted to talk to you about quite a lot because you know I know I've seen on Instagram I don't know which one of your bullies now this this will be because I know you've got a chihuahua yeah Basil that's my uh, latest one he's all over my Instagram at the minute so he's yeah no lovely you know he's (laughs) no he's got a lovely face he really really has but has he got cropped ears because I couldn't notice he does so I never because of all my campaigning work um, and the fact that I, I go so hard against lots of celebrities for sharing mutilated animals on online, I never post photos where you can see his ears. Um, but I just feel it's wrong to normalise the look, unless it was specifically a campaign post where I was telling people, look, you know, this is wrong and it's abhorrent. And I don't want to have to do that on every single one of his photos that I share, because it's also like I'm sharing them for, for other reasons. I, personally, I just prefer not to have them in the picture if I if, if I'm, that's not what I'm talking about specifically, because I think that that the main reason we got here was like influencers and celebrities sharing mutilated dogs online. That was what that's what made it so popular. And I would hate to be playing any kind of a role in that. I, I feel like that would be hypocritical. So finding that balance for me hasn't been easy because in the beginning, I actually wasn't going to share any of his photos. I never used to share any photos of Earl, but that was also to do with the nasty place he came from and the nasty people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so but, but part of that is as well, just making sure that we don't proliferate that, that normalization of these mutilated ears. Yes, no, I absolutely agree. But it is certain breeds, as you've said, that do tend to have these mutilated ears. And I'm kind of going there in terms of there is a lot of talk at the moment about the XL bully being added to the dangerous dogs list at the moment due to the fact that out of, I think it's about, I mean, you will know the figures just as well as I do. I think about eight, 18 humans have lost their lives to dogs in the last 18 months, which does represent a tragic additional loss to the usual pre-pandemic figure of about two or three a year of humans would would be basically killed by a dog. Yes, in all of these cases, it could not have happened. And yes, we all know that the people with those dogs weren't reading the right signals or hadn't trained or socialised these dogs and accidents happen. You know, I was reading a piece I sent you actually, Jordan, that was just in the Spectator magazine um, uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday, written by a journalist who clearly doesn't really like dogs, which is fine. You know, everyone's, you know, sort their own opinions. What are you making of this surge? I know a lot of dog experts are quite concerned about this now massive trend for the XL bully because it's not actually a breed of dog. It's not recognised by the Kennel Club, for example. You can't say, oh, this is a Pekingese crossed with a Jack Russell. And again, it's Unfortunately, it's it, it, it's this dreadful trait of the human condition that I don't know why, <laughs> you know, to kind of the underworld, basically. I mean, you know, they're lovely dogs, but, you know, to proliferate them as being really always great with children, easy to train, all the rest of it, that I would argue is not always the case. Jordan. No, uh, so I, I, I would agree that that's definitely not always the case, but I would say that about lots of um, dogs, most dogs, if I'm honest, I, I, I'm always shocked at things I see um, 
people in particular on the internet like photos of children and dogs and and how they're allowed to interact with one another is always quite horrifying to me as someone that understands how to observe a dog's behavior and all those different signals that they're uncomfortable um i i, I personally wouldn't um like to see XL bullies added to the list. And that's not just because I have one, because let's face it, I would probably be deemed a, a fit and proper person to keep one. He'd be muzzled and he'd be on a lead and I could live with that. That wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, but we'd see loads of dogs die for no reason. And then what we would see is we would see this particular underbelly and and real links with organized crime gangs you know when we when we get uh, when i see reports coming in um of this like uh, breeding you see that there's there's direct links between those doing the breeding and organized crime gangs that that actually it's easier money for them now than drugs are and so this is what they're doing and and there's already been a move away from xl bullies so because of all the latest press and stuff they've already started to move more into the pockets and exotic like french bulldogs because they want money and if people aren't going to buy the dogs because they're scared they're not they're not going to carry on trading them but they will move on to something else and so that i think is the key message is that it's not so much the breed that's an issue it's the breeding and they're two slightly different things i mean their breeding practices are horrific the types of dog that the types of dogs and the dog's behavior that they're breeding wouldn't be ones that that often a normal breeder would say, yeah, you know, that fits the temperament, that fits the, the, the health criteria for a dog we want to breed. And that's part of the issue. But they will just go on to another, another dog that's a slightly different legal shape if this shape becomes illegal. Because we don't ban breeds, we ban types. And so it's based on that physical shape. So they'll just move outside of those physical characteristics to, to change it to a slightly different shaped dog. And then that is what they'll breed. What we really, really need is restrictions on ownership. We need some kind of a licensing scheme um, that, that both puts in place sort of early intervention opportunities, because that's what it would do, but also make sure that owners are given the, the necessary legal and safety information before going and owning a dog. I mean, you wouldn't send someone out in a car before doing a test. And so the idea that you'd send someone out with a dog before doing a test to me just seems obscene. Um, and if we were able to restrict and control ownership a little bit more, we'd be able to push uh, those people that are doing it for the wrong reasons out of owning dogs. And that's what we need. Oh, I agree. I mean, I'm so with you on that. I absolutely say bring back the dog license and and indeed have a test before you you get a dog. But then, you know, the, the worrying thing is, is how feasible is this really, Jordan, you know, with lack of funding? How would it be policed? I mean, at the moment, we've got about 16 microchip databases that would have to all come down to one. I just think it's crazy it's not being done already because we've obviously got the template, haven't we, for the DVLA? Your number plate is turned into your dog's microchip. You know, it, surely from a software perspective, it would be quite easy, I think, to sort of make well, into a my, dog thing. In my work in, in uh, animal licensing Wales, obviously I have to preface everything I say these days because I work for government with the fact that all, all my views and opinions are my own and not necessarily those of my yes. employer. But Don't worry, my... everything. <laughs> these are our own opinions on yeah. my podcast. In, um, in, in my job in animal licensing Wales, we are building a um, centralised system for, 
for breeding licenses because at the minute it's all done um, through local councils and we want to do it on a national level through an online database and system. Once we've built this system, any dog that's bred and born in Wales will be on that system, transferred to the owners and remain on that system until they die. It's not that much of a stretch to add in uh, um, elements that, that basically turn it into a centralized licensing and uh, licensing and microchip database. I think the license is probably more important than the microchip because not everyone keeps them up to date. But but that that it, the elements are there, so we can we can put that together. It's it's really not that far off, if I'm honest. And and enforcement, I I don't know whether the cost would be that great. All it would do is it would point us in the direction of the people we need to be going to talk to. You know, put us away from those that we don't. Well, how though? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's something I was talking about the other night because, well, for example, at the moment, certainly in London, dog poo is at an extraordinary level, um, which is a worry. It's always a worry because it's a symptom. It's a symptom of the bigger cause that owners can't be bothered to pick up their dog poo. But this means they can't be bothered to train them to do a sit. This means they can't be bothered to train a recall. So that and the amount of dog poo. I've trodden in one, you know, not my own dog, so... This morning, for example, Jordan, it ruined my walk, actually, you know, again, and it is epidemic. And my point, and so I was talking about, you know, there's this um, poo DNA testing laboratories. There's several of them that do exist where, you know, you have to swab your dog's mouth. But this could all link in with a dog license scheme, you see, which is which would be great because you'd always get the responsible owners doing the swab of their dog's mouth. So you get the DNA from that dog. It's registered in a laboratory. So if a bit of your dog's poop was picked up in the park, you know, and you get a phone call, oh, hello, Miss Webb, we've picked up, we realise that you didn't pick up Prudence's poo on do you know whatever you know then that's great but surely which is a brilliant idea and it's but how on earth ever is this going to to work with with this country um i think in sweden you see in scandinavia yeah this would all work yeah and dog license exists in scandinavia it's all very different you know you're not even allowed to neuter your dog in norway which from my wellness perspective i think is a really really amazing thing to be able to say they also exist in austria germany there's and they take different forms in different countries and there's uh calgary in, in canada um it's very different in each place and and we wouldn't have to pick up something from another country and follow it exactly you could kind of mould something to what suits us here in the UK. But I, I think you're right in as much as, yes, it will be all the responsible people that will go out and get a licence. But that then gives uh, enforcement a way in to, to deal with those that don't have a licence. Just the very nature and the very fact that they don't have a licence would allow enforcement to then go and talk to them and be like, hey, guys, what are you doing? Whereas at the moment, there is no there is no way in to have that conversation. And that's, mm. that's part of the problem. The other thing as well that I think is really important is we have to move away from this. I guess as a society, we've kind of got into this uh, desire for next day delivery. It's probably all Prime's fault, you know, Amazon. <laughs> um, you know, like everything has to be next day, next day. And people feel the same thing about their puppies when they're going to go and get a puppy. Like they should be able to order one and it comes the next day. And uh, puppies aren't impulse buys. Like they're lifelong commitments. And I actually think that something that slows down that process and makes people stop and think and learn before they go and get the dog wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. I think it would be really great.
would be brilliant but Jordan it's only been very recently you've been able to buy a dog on the internet and the irony is it soared during the pandemic because nobody could go anywhere so and everybody wanted a dog because as you said social media was promoting the dog as a must-have pandemic accessory so you can walk in the park and not feel like a complete idiot walking in the park on your own because you you've got a dog so it's okay that you're walking in the park I just wish and I don't know how it can be stopped but to stop all of these dreadful websites. Honestly, I've been on there for research purposes and I just get so sad that um, I can't I can't really do it. And I know rescues that I work with here in London, like All Dogs Matter. Oh gosh, Ira Moss, the, the CEO. I love Ira, she's great. She's, she's lovely. Well, she <laughs> traced one bulldog on that website to four different homes in a very short period of time. So that's really bad as well. So you can buy them, you can sell them again, like eBay. And I think until that is seriously sorted out, puppy smuggling will continue. Dog theft will also continue at a, you know, at a massive rate. And meanwhile, what's happened is governments shelved the animal welfare kept bill over to you, Jordan. <laughs> that was a great segue. I was so frustrated with the um, canning of that bill. You know, there was so much in there. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just what I had been working on with the guys at Foe and, and loads of other organizations. I mean, there was like 15, 16 organizations supporting uh, both the 100K petitions that I did. Um, I, I was horrified, you know, when they decided they were going to drop something that could have ended the illegal trade in mutilated dogs, that could have en ended the... Um, illegal trade in, in the smuggling of, of, of puppies, young puppies over into the UK that could have brought about the pet theft offence, a, a proper offence and, and people doing proper time for stealing what is someone's family member. Whereas at the moment they're looked at basically like a mobile phone, which is crazy. They're not a thing. They're a living sentient being that's part of people's families. There was, um, within that bill, there was uh, um, aspects that were to to help um, bring about more uh, charges and stricter penalties for those that, allow their dog to be dangerously out of control around livestock and are involved in livestock worrying. There was um, parts of the bill that were, were looking at restricting primates as pets. I mean, I could go on because it was such an incredible piece of legislation. But, I, well, it was, Jordan, so sorry. Well, it was too much. I think the problem with it was, I was talking to Dr. Dan Allen about this the other day. I mean, you know, that's it to, you know, covering primates, to puppy smuggling, to ear cropping. Live exports, banning live exports as well. That yeah, exactly. So we were yeah. talking about cattle and livestock there. It was just too much. Mm -hmm. And I think, but what, what, why I mentioned it in that kind of dramatic way was there was so much in that one piece of legislation, which to me just highlights that there is so much at the moment going wrong in our society at the moment with dogs, all driven by people, you know, of course. There's so much to do as well. Like, There's too much to do. And, and really, so in a way, I think, you know, I mean, pet abduction needs to be handled separately. Flop not crop is another one. And this illegal puppy smuggling business, it's interesting. I'm actually working with an organisation. Do look them up. They're going live with adverts now right across Ireland. Just starting small, but we're, you know, I'm helping lobby government over there and working with some lobbyists and a really groovy PR firm. Um, it's called Dog Advocacy Ireland. 
And it's all about rattling (laughs) the cage of government to make them communicate together because it's very fragmented the way Irish Parliament is set up. It's very different to our Parliament. And it's basically allowing criminals to get the licences for these horrific puppy farms. And meanwhile, ship most of them over to the UK, get people to put pretty pictures of these puppies on these websites. and, And the circle goes on and on. But no one's been able to stop puppy farming. You know, I mean, I was involved with Mike Abraham a long, long time ago with Pup Aid and no one's been able to stop it. And I don't think anyone can. That is my bleak view of it all at the moment, Jordan. And and so, yes, shelving this, this, this bill was ridiculous, but I feel it was so overcomplicated that a lot of people didn't know exactly what it was trying to achieve even. You know, the, it wasn't so much the shelving of the bill that was so frustrating. It was the, what, I think 15 months or so of bluster of them saying that it was going to go through and us waiting and waiting when actually they could have uh, gone with individual bills much earlier and we wouldn't be sat here now having this problem. Mm. You know, I think that's that's part of it was that yeah, every time. So the first petition I ran was the 100K um uh flock not crop one and 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 the second one and cut the crop the second one was uh for the kept animals bill and the response we got from government was don't worry it's gonna happen and we kind of knew it wasn't at that point because they kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and i i had a bad feeling for quite a while um but if they'd just been honest we could have got on and and i mean those bills individual bills could have gone through I, i just feel like if i'm honest there's lots of talk and and not much actual legislation being laid at the minute like that's what it feels like with this government we don't really seem to be getting anywhere um and and that's part of the problem there was some great progress previously with like the sentience bill and, and things like that but we, we've got a long way to go and i just i really hope we manage to get the the changes for flock not crop through soon Yes, well, gosh, I really hope so too. So, but I guess, you know, it probably won't happen super soon. I'd just like to see um, local authorities gain more power again to help communities, you know, because every community has its own set of problems across the country to offer more education, which sounds a bit kind of, you know, hackneyed, I suppose. But that I think is the key. I think there just has to be so much more education around dogs. Going back to what you were saying about breeding quickly, because I think it was quite an important point where you you said you felt like that nothing could be done to deal with these puppy farms Uh, i do feel like in the in the role that i'm doing now we are making or starting to make a difference um you know we're slowly raising the standards um of these places across wales and are also slowly um pushing for more tightening up of the existing regulations and, and legislation and although it is a, I have to be honest, it is a slow process, you know, government cogs don't move very quickly. It is happening and we are looking to implement more education, both for breeders and for owners. And so that is the route that we are going down. And and so I would just say, like, watch this space and don't lose complete hope, because I do really hope that we'll get there. I think you need to go to um southern ireland really with it i think <laughs> that um that go on go on go on go on they offer me um, a job you know <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just um awfully sad really but anyway but yes i mean dogs bring us so much joy and we mustn't forget that and they are the most they are man's best friend you know so um we mustn't let them down that's the thing we mustn't let them down but it's good to be 
trying to sort it out, I think. And of course, this scheme that you're, you're this, you know, what is it called again in Wales, Jordan? That you're watching. Uh, I, I'm, I'm systems coordinator at Animal Licensing Wales, and uh, what we're looking to do is to try and. Um, create a, a uniformed approach to to licensing because obviously at the minute it, it's all been done by by local councils so just trying to to regulate it from a, a national level across wales so so that we have the the higher standards that we want that we know that the people that are coming to do your license aren't the same people that license the taxi or the restaurant down the road. They're people with animal welfare, veterinary and behavior backgrounds that, that really understand what it is they're seeing in front of them and how to make the lives better for those dogs. Cause I think that's key and uh, um, give it, give it some time. And I, I really think we'll have the education courses up. We'll have the online system up and we'll be pushing for changes because there are changes still to be made. You know I mean? The current ratio of staff to, to dogs, like breeding bitches within the, these establishments is completely wrong. Um, there's, there's too few staff to the number of dogs and we're pushing for those changes and they will come in. So we just have to hold firm and to keep pushing and, and, and really trying to see that progress and make that progress happen. Um, but I, I think it will happen. I, I'm very positive and optimistic since starting in this role, much more so than before. Um, since starting in this role, that, that things are changing quietly behind the scenes and slowly, but they, they are changing. And that if we, I hope if we have this conversation in a year's time, that I'll be able to sit down and tell you that we've finished the online system, that there'll be more of a, a coordinated national approach across Wales, and that we'll be raising those standards and even changing the, the, the legislation to, to raise the, the game welfare-wise for all those dogs. And we, we mustn't, in the, within this whole picture, one thing that I find since uh, um, starting is, is it's really important that we don't forget the mums because we talk a lot about the puppies and these puppies have to go into homes and, uh, and that kind of stuff. But these mums are, are often there for huge portions of their lives and they must have an enriched, fulfilling life. Like they can't just be sat there because happy mums create happy puppies and well-rounded mums create well-rounded puppies. And unless we're giving them as much time as we are within that breeding process as, as the pups, it's not going to work. And the other thing as well is that often when these dogs stop breeding, they then go into homes. Um, they're re re rescued and then they're rehomed uh, and they have to be prepared properly for that uh, change in their environment into a, a home environment from wherever they were. I think that's also really, really important. So just making sure that they get all the relevant um, socialization and enrichment and, and they have really like fulfilled lives. That's really something that's important to me. Jordan, I can't wait to speak in a year. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll eat my coffee cup. Um, <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it all sounds totally brilliant. And, uh, yes, um, I'm crossing everything and, and touching wood as we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, it's been a pleasure to talk. So I really hope um, to chat again very soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, crumbs, so much to talk about, but it's so good that Jordan is making headway in Wales. And you're right, it is time for Woof of the Week. <coughs> if your dog doesn't have naturally pointy ears, please don't cut them with kitchen scissors to make them pointy. <coughs> and I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show wherever you tune into your podcasts. 
And please follow Jordan Shelley and rate his work too. And all the links are in our show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen for all the music and production as ever. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday. So go on, subscribe. It's free and really easy to do. And it means you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Thank you.